Bike races and bike events are back in a big way in 2021. And if you are an Active Pass member, you get access to some of the coolest bike events around. That's right, it's the Roll Massif lineup of events. Eight events, gravel, road, and mountain bike sprinkled throughout the spring, summer, and fall. You can learn all about them by going to rollmassif.com. And if you are an Active Pass member, you get 25% off registration to any of these events. Plus, you get free entry to the June 6th Elephant Rock ride down in Douglas County, Colorado. What is Elephant Rock? It's a true Colorado cycling classic dating back more than 30 years. There is the 100-mile course, the 60-mile course, and the 44-mile course, plus... There is a gravel course, 28.5 miles, and a family ride that's eight miles. So there's something for every member of the family. You can come down, make an entire weekend out of it, and expose anyone in your family to cycling with one of these great distances. So to learn more about all the cool stuff you get with Active Pass, go to velonews.com forward slash Active Pass. You can learn about the events, the deal from sponsors, training advice, magazines, books, all the cool stuff you get. Again, felonews.com forward slash active pass. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you another Tuesday here at the home office. And oh, it's Flanders Week. It's Flanders Week, the best week of the year. It's Flanders week. It's Flanders week. We drank a lot of beer. We watched some bike racing. We fell off our seats and we were blown away when Casper Asgreen and Annemiek van Vluten won the Tour of Flanders this past week. Um, I've spoken many times and written about this, about how Flanders is my favorite race. It is such a thrilling and exciting race with so much intrigue because there's tactics and there's decisions that are made in the moment. And yes, the strongest rider usually wins, but sometimes it's the strongest team or the rider who plays his cards perfectly. And I feel like that is what uh, happened on Sunday, especially in Casper Askreen's victory. And we're going to break it all down today on the podcast with James Start and Andy Hood. And then the second half of the podcast, I have an interview with American Leia Thomas. And Leia was part of Annemiek van Vluten's winning squad at uh, with Team Movistar at Flanders. And she's going to take us inside the race and tell us all about what it's like to transition from being on a Swiss team as an American to a Spanish team with speaking some Spanish, with Dutch people on it, and it's a very international affair. So really psyched to have Leia Thomas on the podcast. Uh, before we get to Leia, though, we got to talk about Flanders, folks. I when, I when I've been thinking about some of the 30,000-foot lessons and takeaways from this year's Flanders, there's, you know, the epic battle between Van Der Poel, Wout Van Aert, and De Kuna Quickstep. There's the battle for supremacy of the spring. But I think the thing that I keep coming to Andy Hood is a lesson that all of us can take away from this, which is that you should always sprint. Doesn't matter who you're going up against, even if the guy on paper is faster than you or stronger than you, you should always sprint because you never know what can happen. Casper Asgreen was sprinting against, on paper, a guy who had a much better sprint than him. But boom, he just exploded. And Andy, as you were watching that moment, uh, take us back to that moment. I mean, did you fall out of your chair? Were you expecting? Uh, to see that finish? Or did you, were you like all of uh, us out there in the cycling world expecting Matthew Vanderpool to dust poor Casper Askreen? Yeah, it was, it was a good, it was an exciting finale. I mean, you know, Twitter forever uh, captures whatever you wrote. And I, I, 
you know, throwing some social media out there. I think I wrote something like, oh, uh, Askren's only chance is to attack with about two Ks to go to try to time trial away, get a jump and time trial it to the finish. And, uh, of course, got a lot of slack on social after uh, Askren won that sprint. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I was surprised that uh, Askren had that kind of uh, power and speed at the end. But um, that just shows after 250-plus Ks of racing, uh Vanderpool just popped. He just blew up. He just didn't have that those extra five watts he needed at the end of five, six hours of racing. And that's what makes the monuments great. That's the difference, that extra, that magical sixth hour of racing. That's why these races are so unpredictable and, and so exciting to watch. Uh, you know, Asgard won E3, and the stats are there. There's always that high possibility. You win uh, Harrowbecka, you're going to podium or win Flanders. And that is lived to be true again this year. It was. I mean, James, you were there. You were at the race. Uh, were you still on the Paderberg at that moment? Or had you made it to the finish line? You know, Take us inside those last few kilometers from your experience. To be honest with you, uh, I was not on the Paderberg. I was in the ditch next to the Paderberg, uh, where I often am. And, uh, and then I watched the finish uh, after the race. And uh, two observations. As I was going back through my, my images, you know, going into that, I thought, well, going into the Patterson, I thought, well, you know, many of us thought that Vanderpool would be the strongest, maybe drop him. And I was kind of focusing on him, looking for him to get his head up or maybe pull away. And, at, you know, you, knew you saw, they were just in this lock in this mano a mano on the Patterson, right? Which was, I mean, it was really fascinating. And when I look back at my pictures, Vanderpool was struggling more. He was having trouble keeping his line. He, you know, he he came over. He changed lines. He wasn't looking up. Uh, As Green was looking up much more. You know, signs of being awake and aware. Uh, and I didn't quite realize that until I went back through my images. That said, when we got to the final, all right, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I would have given uh, I would have given it to Vanderpool, but I As Green's no slump chump. At, uh, at at sprinting, especially after 250k, uh, I I've known him since he raced the Tour de l'Avenir. I forget what year that was, and he went in a long break, first stage, won the, and won the sprint, uh, and took over the old jersey for like three days. And you know he's the youngest guy ever to you know he got second in Flanders two three years ago and was the youngest guy ever to get on the podium in Flanders, if not even a monument. So obviously he's a finisher. Obviously Flanders is a good race for him, and. Uh, you know, I, I didn't say it was hands down uh, for, for Vanderpool. Also, face it, when it comes to the big monuments, Vanderpool has, has a little trouble, uh, you know, closing the deal, as we say. Uh, you know, and I think, we, you know, we talk about Roglic crashing and cracking on the final days. You know, we're going to have to start having that discussion about Vanderpool. I mean, obviously, he's young, but all season, you know, he's been on the attack, running himself, you know, 100% in a cyclocross, in the Tirreno. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me that he cracked. What did surprise me was just the spectacular way in which he did crack. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen somebody, you know, launch that sprint, and it was a good sprint, you know, and Asgreen had a good jump. But I was like, man, I don't know. And I thought at one point Asgreen was going to come around. I was like, man, I don't know if he's going to make it. And all of a sudden, boom. You know, there he went. He was just like a you know a balloon that just popped, and I, that, I, I've never quite seen that. That was spectacular. 
Yeah, it was. I think that when I rewatched the sprint, there's a moment where you expect to see Vanderpool at least get a gap. And he doesn't. He accelerates, but he doesn't really get a gap. Askreen's right there. And then it's just sort of a question of who can keep their hand on the stove longer. And... You know, even the announcers kind of fell out of their chair where they're like, wow, Askreen is not getting distanced in this sprint. He's right there, pedal stroke for pedal stroke. And then at a certain point, it's just who can keep the gas on the pedals all the way to the line? And um, Vanderpool couldn't. And and that was that. And in going back and rewatching this race, I feel like, you know, I always, whenever I go back and rewatch, I keep an eye out for strategic moves, strategic decisions, moments of, um, you know, effort being wasted or too much effort being spent. And I felt like that was totally that was kind of the name of the game for both Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert, which is in those awesome 70 final kilometers where they take in the Quermont, the Paderberg, the Koppenberg, the Tienberg, the Steenbeek trees, the uh, Kreuzberg. And, you know, it's just climb after climb after climb. Um, Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool were always at the front. They were always chasing down stuff driving the pace, never skipping pulls, always pulling through, always like putting in a lot of effort to try and keep whatever front group they were in going. And Kasper Askreen and Julian Alaphilippe kind of spent, like traded off being the guy with them. There was one time where like Alaphilippe attacked over the uh, Koppenberg and draws out Vanderpool and Walt Van Aert, and they're pulling together and pulling together. And Askreen's in the group behind, and he's just kind of chilling. And, you know, then there's a, the, the groups came together, and there was a real reshuffling. And then it was Askreen's turn to be out front. And so when I, I started to look at that and realize, you know, this, this was a storyline of De Kunic Quipsteps, power and numbers, and those numbers being two guys, Askreen and Alaphilippe. Um, being stronger than Vanderpool and Van Aert, who were going blow to blow, pull for pull with both of these guys. And, you know, it speaks to a storyline, Andy, that you had been covering throughout the spring, which was basically everyone is looking at Wout Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool, but Dakuna Quickstep still has this power in numbers and this strategy of attack. And will they be able to overcome these two Titans? And it sounds, it, you know, it really seems like. They were able to do that, Andy. I mean, what was your read on Quickstep's strategy and how it played out that day? Yeah, I think it was another example of just how well Quickstep just manages its classics program and its rotation and really how unselfish those guys race. That's one thing that always stands out to me. Even I remember when Joubert was on the team a few years ago, how he would really unselfishly help his teammates win. I was kind of surprised by that. Uh, I just thought, you know, Gilbert was the big star before he, he joined Quickstep, but he really kind of bought into that whole attitude, that kind of three musketeers attitude of, because they know as a block collectively, their chance will eventually come. You know, it might not be the Flanders or the Robay, but it'll be a Duars, it'll be a San Remo, it'll be one of those races and they'll get their chance. I mean, this year's classics program, uh, this classic season, nine race, nine major one days that really counted. Quick step one four and got uh, two more podiums, I believe. Um, so the most successful team uh, with all different winners in those races, uh, besides Asgren doubling up with E three and uh, Flanders. Um, so it just really shows, I think, uh, the advantage of racing in that kind of uh, full court press offense. It's almost like the Denver Nuggets back in the eighties, man. Defense didn't count; it was all just offense. And uh, 
I'm really showing my age with that reference. Um, but uh, then, uh, but then I think also at the same time, uh, Vanderpool and wow, we're just a little bit undercooked uh, this year. I think, as James said, you know, they were I think chewing a little bit too off, too much off the bone this year, especially Vanderpool. You know, because they remember, you know, the, the classic season really only only ended in October last year, and you know, especially Vanderpool went into a pretty heavy cyclocross season didn't have much time off uh van van air had more time off but still those guys were not really a hundred percent i don't think really coming into this year's spring class they were a little bit off quick step made up uh just with their massive numbers and i think again that just shows that a team is always stronger than one yeah it was uh they had a team and the other guys don't have a team and i was again going through it i i went back and on the Paderberg, on the first time up, I was surprised to see how many uh, how many Jumbo Visma guys were off the back. So those guys, they went on the attack early. They, and in a sense, they sort of isolated themselves early, you know. And it's great for cycling. But as Jan Muzio told us last week, you know, when we talked to him, he said, these guys, at the level they're at, if they don't win a monument this year, it's not a successful season. Terreno at the end of the year, three stages going off on a 60 kilometer break. All oh, that's just fine in the end, but it's Terreno. It's not Milan San Remo. It's not Flanders. And we don't have Roubaix to go to this year. So they, they, you know, missed opportunities there. We went our winning, um, Gemp was, was obviously, um, uh, was very, was very good. But, you know, it was, yeah, I think the, you know, quick step, like Andy says, um, you know, they've got the power numbers. They've got the experience in these classics. They have every mechanic knows where he needs to be at right, the right time. They have all the best cho- – they make all the best choices all the time. And that comes with 30 years of team building. That said, uh, the, the there is a limit to the uh, all for one and one for all. Uh, and the biggest champions uh, like Gilbert will know how to use that to their advantage. So, yes, he would – I remember him very well uh, sac- sacrificing himself for Viviani at, at Gonvevelgem, for example. Uh, that was like below him. He had his eyes on one race that year, and it was Roubaix. And I remember him telling me last year when we we talked, uh, we did a story with uh, Gilbert as he recounted his victory in Roubaix, and he said very clearly at one point we're like in the Carrefour Lab, and I got over the race radio, let a gap go with I think it was uh, Lampard, right? Uh, and 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 he just said no, I'm not giving this race away. This is my race to to lose, and I'm not going to lose it like that. This is my chance to win this monument. And I'm Philippe Gilbert. No, I'm not going to let a gap open up. It, it's interesting, though, that like a, di- a dynamic like that didn't play out on Sunday with Philippe Because look, Philippe is the star. He's the world champion. He is, you know, was right in the mix to win last year. And as they came into the Kreuzberg, you know, both Philippe and Casper um, Askren were in that front group. And, you know, I think that you could look at a moment like that of saying, okay, if – if this is an Alaphilippe team, then have Casper Askren put a couple big poles on the front and then let Julian, you know, save himself for the old Quaramont. But it was the opposite. Like Julian put in the big uh, poles up the first part of the Kreuzberg and then it was Askren who attacked over the Hotond part, which is uh, the Terpsterberg, as I call it, the paved part. And that was it. That drew out Walt Van Aert and uh, Matthew Vanderpool. And that was it for Alaphilippe. And, you know, to, to me, that one, that moment of the race, that one, two punch was like, okay, they're just going for whoever's strongest or, you know, they're just playing this as a, as a team game and whoever wins, wins. 
Well, Alaphilippe did say uh, in his social posts and stuff that Asgreen was clearly the strongest that day, and I think he saw it. And I think, you know, hats off to him uh, for having the humility not to say, hey, I'm the world champion. I might not be quite as strong as him, but I want to play my card. Um, that's not what ha- was happening with Gilbert. Gilbert was, you know, Perry Roubaix felt like he was every bit the strongest, and he just wasn't going to give it away on Team Tactics. But I think I think uh, two days ago, Alaphilippe had the, uh, the, the the clearness of vision to understand that he wasn't quite as strong, to and, and they really needed the strongest guy up there to win it, because that was still quite a ways away from the finish. Yep. So, Andy, I mean, is it safe to say then that Duke Kuhn and Quickstep has won the spring? I mean, yes, we still have the hilly classics left to go, but in terms of cobbled racing, in terms of these early monuments, um, what's your read on how things shook out? Uh, I would say absolutely. They they definitely win the honors of the of the Northern Classics. Uh, you know, if you include Stradivari and, and San Remo and that. Um, you know, the uh, Trek Segafredo had a very good spring campaign. Campaign they won. Uh, Kuna, Rosa Kuna, and San Remo, uh, two big wins with their big star riders. Uh, and then Wout and Mateo each won one. And the only other team to win out of the nine races was Ineos with Dylan Van Barl winning uh, Dwarves the other day. So uh, actually, I was doing some numbers crunching, and um, those five teams won those nine races. And you had uh, 14 total teams, including those five that were winning the races, uh, hit the podium. Uh, of these races. So it just kind of illustrates how competitive and how intense the racing is. You know, we miss out Robey, unfortunately. Uh, you can maybe count Sheldapri uh, this week as part of this bundle as well. Um, but it's just, you know, everything's all in. You know, the races are one day, there's no tomorrow. Uh, that's what all these guys live and train for. I mean, the pressure they must, they must race under, you know, I mean, your whole season is really based on 10 days. And imagine guys like uh, Greg Van Avermaet or, uh, uh, you know, some of the other riders on these secondary teams, you know, how hard it is for those guys. And in fact, I, I wanted to say, you know, I thought one of the grittier, uh, most impressive rides for me also on Sunday was Van Avermaet, you know, jumping out of that group and just riding away from everybody to get third. Uh, you know, people don't remember fourth, but the podium is the podium. And I know how hard Van Avermaet and that team was working coming into this classic season. Kind of had some bad luck in a few scenarios. And I know they had a couple of top fives. But even just hitting third uh, for Van Avermaet just shows, you know, what a pro he is. And plus, he's never won that race. I mean, it just says a lot about his character, the, the way he finished that race off Sunday. And, you know, you can see how hard he was going uh, to get third place. So, yeah, I thought it was a great classic season. Uh, I, you know, my surprise really was how well uh, Quickstep manages Wout, manage Wout and uh, Vanderpool. You know, everyone thought that those two were just going to kind of ride away and dominate the classics. And I, I, I thought it too. Um, but it just shows that, Team tactics and the classics are unpredictable, and that's why we all love racing. Uh, I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait till next year. You know, back, back with Woot, Woot and, and Vanderpool. I mean, they're still young. They still got a lot to learn. And um, you know, I said I had a really wonderful uh, conversation uh, uh, Friday uh, at the hotel with Peter Saga and, and Freddie Martins. And Freddie was saying, Freddie said to him, uh, you know, what I really like about you is you're so intelligent and you, when you're strong, you don't always show it. And Peter was like, well, you know, to be honest, Freddie, I lost a lot of great races because I wasn't that smart. And he went through like two San uh, San Ramos that he lost. He said, it was just, you know, I I showed how good I was too early and people played off me and he doesn't do that anymore because he doesn't have that kind of strength to, uh, 
you know, to, 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 to give around, but that's what Van Art and Van Avermont, or uh, Van Art and uh, Vanderpool, I think are still, still need to learn because they're not, they haven't learned that yet. And until they do, uh, they're not going to be dominating the classics. Like a lot of people hope they do. No, I'm with you, James. It, like I said, on the rewatch, that was one thing that just jumped out at me was, yeah, Wout Van Aert is not skipping a single pull. He's shutting down every gap. You know, if he's caught out, he's the one pulling back whatever group is out there. You know, Tom Pidcock attacks over the Steenbeek trees and Wout is bringing him back. You know, v- uh, Vanderpool and Casper went on the second Paderberg and Wout is bringing him back. And boom, third, you know, the final ascent of the Ode Quermont and right at the top. And it's just like, he's out of gas. And you go back and watch the way he raced and you're like, yeah, I bet he's out of gas. He's been putting in so much effort over the last 70 kilometers. And Vanderpool, I felt like maybe he was a little more cagey, but same sort of thing. You know, he's driving the groups. He's taking monster pulls. He's surging and attacking. And it's like in that last hundred meters, that's where all that stuff catches up with you. And so it will be interesting to see the lessons learned from this year's classics campaign for both of those guys as they go forward. Anyway, it was an awesome Flanders. It's on Flow Bikes. If you're a total Flandersologist like me, you can watch it again and again and again. Annoy your family. Um, just, you know, crank up the replay over and over again. Um, a couple of unsung heroes in there too. Uh, Mark Holler having a great race. Dylan Toons having a pretty good race. Um, Tom Pidcock again, you know, he lacked a little bit at the end, but he was putting in some digs. So I think that all bodes well for exciting uh, classics to come. Hey, we got to talk to about some of the other storylines that happened this week, um, namely some of the storylines to come out of that Flanders. The first of which was that Michael Shar, Mickey Shar, fan favorite, love that guy. He's nine feet tall. He's hilarious. Was DQ'd for throwing his bottle to some fans, which is an age old practice that you have seen at bike races forever. Hey, there's some fans. They're cheering for me. Have a bottle. Here's your, uh, you know, your your little token to take back and cherish. And he was DQ'd. Afterwards, he went on Instagram and wrote a, I thought, very thoughtful post about how when he was a kid, uh, he was thrown a bottle and he still cherished that. And that had a big impact on him. Guys, what was your takeaway uh, of this UCI rule and how they enforced it on Mickey Shar and how they're going to do it going forward with specifically with the bottle tossing? I knew Shar pretty well. Uh, he's a real fan of photography. So he's always asking me about my cameras and stuff. And he's just a wonderful guy. Really, really nice guy. And now he's on, uh, uh, now he's on the French team and I know them very well. So, um, you know, I can't say, I mean, he's just one of the nicest guys out there, real stand up guy, guy plays by the rules. Um, I saw a video clip, you know, and he clearly signals to the small group of people the bottle and he throws it down at their feet. And I think he even turns, I couldn't quite see, but I think he turns to like wave to them or something afterwards. And, and he's not like just throwing a bottle off in the weeds or anything, right? Um, and he gets DQ'd. Uh, I, what's the UCI trying to do? Show an example here? I don't know. Uh, obviously, it's going to be hard uh, to try to, for the UCI, now they put this rule in place to figure out when somebody's actually giving it to us fan and when they're just like littering. But it's 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 going to create some problems. I mean, I remember I actually communicated with, with Michael about this because I certainly supported him on it. I said, you know, I remember... Jens Voigt we used to do these journals and, and the tour and one day he was coming up Alp Duez and he threw his bottle and he was off the back, you know, he's just finishing riding in and he threw his bottle to a, a kid and some old geezer jumped out, you know, in front of the kid and grabbed it. Now Jens is racing on the on the on the on the Alp Duez. He stopped, he turned around, 
And he yelled at the old guy and said, you give that bottle to this kid. That was not for you. Like, how dare you do that? These guys, when they're throwing bottles to, to fans, it's very often a conscious decision. And, and often they're trying to get it to certain fans. Um, and as Shar pointed out, it's part of our sport. It's one, one of the things that makes the sport different than, you know, a football game or something, you know? Yeah, I have to agree. I think it's, it's kind of overreach and just misdirected, really. I mean, it's like, are you trying to tell me that uh, – tossing water bottles is polluting the environment. I mean, give me a break. I mean, part of the reason of that rule is, you know, the other half of the argument is, you know, you don't want bottles bouncing around the Peloton to cause a crash. That makes sense. Um, but a lot of times these bottles will bounce out of the bottle cages because, you know, it's using the, uh, the carbon bottle cages that are lightweight and the bottle just slips in and out easier. And the bottles will bounce out when they're bouncing through villages and no one's tossing them out. They just bounce out. And that's what, usually is causing a lot of these crashes like last year when uh, Garrett Thomas went down at, at uh, the Giro Italia. But, you know, to have these litter zones and these no trash zones, to me, that is just, uh, you know, uh, the UCI trying to play to the PC patrol, personally, I think, because they're trying to keep the, the Twitter mob quiet. And they're also trying to play up to this green image that cycling is green. And as part of that goes into, you know, they have to sell cycling to governments. They have to sell it to sponsors. And so, you know, the image of the guys tossing out the wrappers and the water bottles, yeah, it's, it's not a good look for cycling. But if they're being, you know, not being hypocritical about uh, polluting and trash and containing the environment, you know, what about the, the 100 cars that drive behind the Peloton every day, the 25 team buses that are belching out, uh, you know, uh, CO2 emissions? I mean, come on. It's a ridiculous rule, especially when in the context of uh, what happened to Mickey Shar. And like James said, you know, most of these times the riders are tossing these bottles out to fans specifically. Mickey Shar was off the back by himself. You know, he wasn't in the middle of a bunch tossing the bottle out over a hedgerow. He was tossing it specifically, handing it really almost to, to fans. So I think it's a ridiculous rule. And, uh, you know, if they start kicking riders out of these races, it's going to totally backfire. And I think so, I read somewhere that a, a rider from Rally was kicked out at the Bass Country today for the same thing, for trash, not a water bottle. Well, well you know, that's a, that's a difference. Trash is a different thing. If you're throwing out the tin foil that wrapped your little sandwich or the plastic wrapper, I can understand that. But the water bottles, I mean, do you know how many people wait along the roadside hoping to get a water bottle? I mean, it's like automatic trash pickup when it comes to water bottles. They're not, they don't last on the roadside very long. So, you know, I think maybe they ought to maybe modify that rule a little bit. You know, trash, okay, you keep the trash in your pocket until the, to the clean zone. Water bottles a little bit different. Yeah, with some of this stuff, I do wonder if like having honest, long sit down, mindful discussions with the riders about it would be a better way to do it than just like imposing these black and white rules and, and ruling with a heavy hand. But that's not the way the UCI tends to function. I, I think it's going to be really interesting as they start enforcing some of these April 1st rules, you know, the no trash, the no water bottle, the no uh, super tuck stuff already in the broadcasts. I have seen announcers sort of <gasps> gasp and hold their tongue at these special specific moments because they're like, I think I just saw so-and-so do whatever. I was just watching Basque Country and the announcers were saying that, you know, a rider who is in the front group, who's in the top five right now, they said, I think I just saw him put his forearms on the handlebars during that descent and then catch himself and remember that you can't do the super tuck. And wow, will the UCI ban them for that? Or even during Flanders, you know, both Vanderpool and um, Kasper Askren jettison their bottles at like 
2k to go and the guys were like um that's not as you know it's not a zone like they just threw their bottles away 2k to go how are they going to enforce that are they going to dq these guys and it turns out i guess you can throw your water bottles you know very close to the finish but still it's sort of it's creating these um interesting scenarios that at some point are going to become judgment calls of like the uci is going to enforce this one but not enforce that one same sort of thing as like the riding through the convoy thing so you know i'm a firm believer of like more more rules doesn't doesn't solve stuff it just creates more problems i mean you look at how the nfl has dealt with like what constitutes a an actual catch and like they just create more rules and more rules and more rules and it just gets more confusing and more muddy so um i think we both we are all three in an agreement that uh put mickey sharp back in flanders let him toss his bottles to throngs of fans he's tall he's nice he's funny he's a great guy he's a great ambassador to sport everyone wants his bottles uh moving on Guys, we got to talk about this storyline too um, before we wrap up, which is that um, before the Tour of Flanders in the week leading up, um, there was a news report in German media, and this was an interview with Ralph Dank, who is the manager of Bora Hansgrohe team, that perhaps Bora was rethinking its um, – you know, its relationship with Peter Sagan. Peter Sagan has a contract negotiation coming up. And Dank basically said, well, you know, he's an expensive rider. He's not really producing right now. He potentially is in the autumn of his career. And we kind of have to think about whether or not we want him back. To which Sagan told uh, Cycling News, well, I don't think I'm in the autumn of my career. And, you know, I don't know. He didn't seem too happy about it. Um, what do we make of this back and forth so close to Flanders, and what do we see? How do we see this uh, scenario playing out? Andy, I'll start with you. You've been following this one in the press, and then James, I know you you talked with Sagan. Uh, we'll go on to you. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear what James has to say. But uh, reading between the lines, man, it's just like uh, I can imagine the, the the bond is broken there between uh, Sagan's camp and Dank because. Um, you know, I think uh, Sagan probably said, uh, you know, let's let's sit down and have a normal conversation because things can be taken out of context in the media. But, um, you know, for Dank to say that, it's just like throwing Sagan under the bus. I mean, Dank has a world tour license and the, his team in large part uh, because of Peter Sagan. If you remember when they signed Sagan in uh, 2017, you know, it was like a huge surprise because that team wasn't even on the radar for the options where Sagan might have even considered going at the time because it was still this little pro Conti team. Uh, and, you know, Dank's done a great job of that team, but it's, you just really get the idea that the feeling is, is like, it's like two teams within one. It's like Sagan's operation. He has his own trainers. He has his own, uh, you know, his own little entourage, his little posse. And then you have all the Germans on the other side. So it, to me, it was that. To me, there's probably no going back in that relationship. So the big speculation is, you know, where Peter Sagan might go. Uh, there's, there were some reports in the, the French media that it might be good to discern it quick step, quick step, which makes uh, sense in a lot of ways because of the specialized tie. Specialized has a long-term deal with Peter Sagan, even into his retirement. He's going to be involved with Specialized. So Specialized is going to be a key uh, player wherever Sagan continues his career. And I mean. You know, who has the money to buy to hire Peter Sagan? The list is going to be pretty short. Uh, you know, Enios, uh, Israel, you know, maybe UAE, you know, who knows where he's going to go. But I have a hard time imagining he's going to stay at Bora. It was pretty fascinating uh, to see that. I mean, and, and we, we've seen these sorts of 
power plays, uh, you know, right? Is he going to negotiations? You throw a bomb out there in the media to try to destabilize the negotiation, that sort of stuff. Um, I certainly agree. I mean, this team would not exist without Peter Sagan. That said, you know, I mean, I have, you have to say that they, they've done a tremendous job in the last two years of really reinforcing with a lot of really great riders. I mean, they have a lot of good riders on the team now. The first year, first two years, it was just really Peter's team, but they kept growing and, and developing certain riders and bringing on others. And it's a, you know, a tremendous team, but, uh, you know, and, and, and the decision to maybe let him go, maybe not is, you know, I mean, you can, there's pros and cons of that. No, he's not winning like he used to, but he sure brings a whole lot of stuff to that team, even when he's not winning. I mean, he's, you know, in terms of just good image to the team, uh, they need a whole lot of victories before they can re- replace what Peter Sagan brings to that team in terms of positive images. Um, and and I will tell you right now, uh, Peter Sagan is long from over. And I think when I see, and I know the guy a bit. I mean, you know, uh, we've I've worked with him um, inside in certain things and, uh, I think that he's more motivated than ever. You know, a couple of years ago, he seemed a little bit bored. You know, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to maintain this and stuff. I think he's kind of realizing that, you know, this is not going to last forever. And he's most cyclists, and I don't know if any cyclist has really ever achieved the same level of success in, 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 in after cycling. It's pretty rare. Um, and, you know, he just – Knows it. And um, Freddie, <coughs> Freddie Martins uh, gave him a few words of advice. And I'll let you read that piece when it comes up. I thought it was rather touching. I thought I thought Sagan's answer was actually maybe a little bit telling. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what that is. I'm going to let you go read it for yourself. Uh, on Vela News, it should be up any minute. It was one of the most uh, one of the most magical moments of, of my career as a, as a, as a photographer and journalist uh, sitting there bringing together Peter and, and Freddie Martins, two of the greatest champions ever, uh, having them discussing the art of sprinting, the world championships, uh, Flanders without fans, no Roubaix, you name it. Um, and they just, they go out of there, they understand each other at a different level. And, and Sagan was, has rarely ever been as talkative as he was there. He just was like, Freddie was his muse. It was really wonderful to watch. And um, so I'm really excited about that piece that is going up today. And, and I hope you all uh, like it as much as I liked doing it. Yeah, definitely check that piece out. I'm, I'm psyched to read it myself, James. Oh, it, it's interesting because Dank is an interesting guy. And in I've had the pleasure of interviewing him a number of times over the last few years. In fact, right after the Sagan deal was announced in 2017. And in all of my discussions with him, you know, when I've started to ask him about Peter and Peter Sagan, this, Peter Sagan, that, he's always been like, well, yes, Peter Sagan, but don't forget about Emmanuel Bookman and don't forget about Pascal Ackerman and don't forget about, you know, he's always, he's always been quick to remind you that this is a German team and there are, you know, German and Austrian writers on this team who are very good, who um, are also a big part of the team. And yes, we have Peter, but also, you know, Bookman is a huge talent. And so I remember like... I'd always kind of just sort of passed over those conversations and those memories. But when I saw those comments come out, it was like, yeah, now it's starting to remind me that Dank, he has, you know, 
Peter Sagan allowed him to have a world tour team, but his passion and his motivation always seemed like it was in the German riders and it was in having this German team like get to the top level of the sport and contend for world tour victories, grand tour victories. And yeah, Peter Sagan is the engine that drove him to that place. But I I wouldn't be totally surprised if this was the end of the road for that deal and Dank has his world tour team and his momentum and his German riders and he goes in a different direction. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised either. Um, and I don't know how, and maybe it's a German thing or maybe it's just that he, you know, he wants to build the best team he can and he wants it to, to last beyond any one rider. I mean, obviously, Kuni Quinstep, Quickstep has done that. I mean, how many classics kings have they had and, and reinvented themselves after each one of them from Muzio to Bunin to now? Um, so maybe that's, maybe that was his, his thoughts. Just, you know, I want to build the best team I can and one that's going to last well beyond any single rider. I don't know. Um, but, uh, as Andy uh, wrote today, um, you know, uh, the people that are seem to be in the forefront for saga and signing somewhere are de Kooning, is the Kooning Quinstep. And let me tell you, if he signs with de Kooning Quinstep, he ain't over. He's going to have a, a second coming like no other. Sagan's a huge talent. He's got still got plenty of victories left in him. And if he's on the right team and 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 gets a team like the Kooning behind him, he's going to win a lot more races. Uh, last thing before we get to Leia Thomas and uh, Annemiek van Vluten's Flanders win, um, Roubaix is postponed. It's official. This is something we've talked about in the last two episodes about you know the rumors and the whispers and um, and the the not so. Uh, unproven rumors. We we saw this coming, but now that it is official, um, what are you guys making of an October second to third Paris Roubaix, one week after the World Championships? How does this decision impact the World Tour calendar and how these classic stars are going to schedule their uh, their seasons? Andy, we'll start with you. Yeah, it must be said. I mean, after we've just bashed the UCI for their. Uh you know, kind of goofy uh, water bottle rule. Uh, they do deserve credit for uh, how they handled this situation and really just the whole COVID uh, crisis over the last year, year and a half. Um, you know, they've had to quickly make this decision. It really came down to the last, just within the last week before Robay, the authorities said, you know, it's not going to work. So the UCI, you know, they brought together all the key players and said, you know, what's going to work? What's the best place to put the race? And, you know, as, ha- as luck has it, you know, the worlds are in Flanders, in Leuven. And so, man, the week after worlds is going to be Rove. So it's an absolutely ideal spot to have the race. Yeah, it's 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 not great that we can't have it this weekend, but what's the best alternative? And it really is that weekend after Worlds. So you know, hats off to the UCI and ASO and everybody that kind of pulled the carts, circled the wagons to kind of work through this issue. Let's just hope that you know by October we can have Robay Man two years in a row with no Robay. That would be yeah, that, that's that's tough. I mean, for I'm with James. I mean, Robay is my favorite race. Uh, so I want to see it this year. So week after Worlds, man, that's a, that's a big weekend. Worlds, Roubaix, stacked up in Belgium. And then, uh, you know, it's going to be just like Flanders, Roubaix, double, really. Yeah, it's uh, it's obviously the date is, is good and exciting. Uh, it really gives, for me, a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, exc- excitement to the end of the season. Because um, a lot of times, you know, after Worlds, you know, it's it's sort of just kind of over and this is going to take it that much longer and it's going to be wham bam thank you man it's going to be really one heck of a, a finale um i thought you know a couple things um i think we saw the writing on the wall um this has been building for a while i think that um 
you know, ASO was very surprised by this and didn't quite know how to handle it. It was trying to trying to get the government to backtrack, but they didn't, and finally had to succeed. So, I, but I didn't. I think it was been, you know, I think this was our fate for a while. And I think yes, I agree with Andy. I think that the UCI did a great job. But as Sagan said to me, uh, we were talking about it and with Freddie, and he said, you know, it's a great date for me. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, I mean, I'm motivated for Worlds. I'm going to be all out for Worlds. So going one extra week for for Rube is a no brainer. You know, it's in terms of condition, in terms of you know potentially, you know, winning again. Um, I have as much chance there as I do here. He said, but you know. It's just so frustrating. It's just really starting to weigh on us. He, he said it very poignantly. Uh, you know, we just can't plan for anything anymore. And look, I mean, some of us have sacrificed three and four months of our, our lives specifically for a race like Roubaix. All of a sudden to find out that, poof, oh, we're going to put it in October. You know, and you got to, you know, you got to you gotta come down from that peak and try to build up for another one. And, and it's just, a, you know, it's obviously starting to weigh on them. Um, and so even though this is a, a you know, a, a good alternative, a, the best of, you know, the best of a bad situation, um, you know, it's it's still going to have effects. There's still going to be riders that probably are better in the spring. And, you know, and that's why they have always focused on Ruby and all of a sudden the autumn, they're not as good. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, a lot of guys have been focusing on this. We've all been dreaming about it. And it's definitely still a real, real shame. It's, it's not happening. And not to sound any alarms, but, you know, I live in France. These numbers just are not getting better. These word our lockdown is going on and on. Numbers aren't getting better. It was the government that shuts us down, and I just hope that that's the only race that gets shut down. But now all of France is in the same lockdown as uh, is northern France, um, and I hope this doesn't spill out to the Dauphiné or, or other races. I, and I hate, hate to say the tour, but I'm just really hopeful that these numbers start coming down because they have not been coming down. And countries like Germany have been in lockdown since November. I mean. Who would have ever guessed a year ago that we'd be in a, almost a worse situation? Um, it's 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 kind of scary, uh, really, and and very disturbing. And I just kept crossing my fingers that these start, numbers start coming down, and the vaccines start getting out there enough to make an effect for this summer, so that we can get back to what we we love doing, which is following and covering bike racing. Well, as a story, we're going to continue to cover in the weeks ahead because uh, we have a lot of bike racing coming up in France and in areas bordering France. Um, you know, here we are in the spring, we have Ardennes races, we have Giro, Roman D and then into uh, Dauphiné and then right into the Tour de France. So it's going to come hot and fast here and we're going to keep covering it all. Um, James Start and Andrew Hood, thank you so much for your insight and your hottest takes on uh, the Tour of Flanders and Bottlegate and Sagan. Um, let's, Let's catch up with Leia Thomas and have her take us inside Annemiek van Vluten's thrilling Flanders win. Okay, now joining the podcast, it's Leia Thomas, the American writing for Team Movistar, and the team just had its biggest win of the season at the Tour of Flanders. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Flanders was really, really exciting for multiple reasons. Um, First and foremost, um, in the 42 years of the existence of Movistar, this was their first Cobbled Classic win. So um, it was really cool to have Eusebio, the team owner, um, there and really be able to celebrate with people who have been a part of this organization for so many years. And to be a part of that first monumental win was really, really special. So that was really, really cool. That's awesome. It's funny. I... Um... 
I had read that somewhere and was like, yeah, you know, I've been watching Flanders for so long and you would see the jerseys of Movistar and past, uh, you know, past team names, like kind of, you know, like be in the breakaway some years or some years they'd have like someone in like the, in the front group. But a lot of years it was like, you, you know, we'd always joke and be like, oh, the poor Spanish guy who gets called up to do the Copa Classics. Because, you know, this team has always been built around Grand Tours and, you know, winning the Tour de France and, and the Welta. And you're like, the poor guys who drew the short straws and had to go uh, get bounced around on the cobblestones. <laughs> well, that's cool. You you etched your name in the team's history in uh, in just your first year on the team. Congratulations. Yeah, definitely. It was also a really cool day because every single person um, from Movistar who raced on Sunday played an integral role in that win. So um, not often can you say every single person contributed. You know, some days, you know, somebody just goes off and really it's a solo effort. And some days it's really takes the work of a team. And it was really cool that everybody gets to feel like they contributed to Anamique's um, really um, fabulous victory on Sunday. Uh, well, what were your contributions and um, what was – what was the pre-race plan for you and what did your contributions end up looking like? Mm-hmm. Um, really, I think hard races suit us better and suits me better and definitely for sure suits Anamique. So um, the goal was to make the race hard and to make the race hard early. And so um, some of my teammates' roles were to do more positioning into key moments in the in the race. And some of my teammates' goals were to try to make the hard the race, excuse me, hard early. So we attacked over Berndries, one of the earlier climbs. And then my job was kind of, um, to make it hard before the, uh, Canary Burke. So I attacked in the climbs before that. And then, um, was there after the Canary Burke to kind of cover, um, SD works when, um, they attacked later on the race, which allowed Anamik to stay a little fresher towards the finish. Uh, I'm now just having memories of my own experiences riding the Flanders course and like Berendries and Canaryburg are two of the, I feel like they're two of the unsung yet really difficult climbs of that course. Everyone always goes on about the Paderberg and the Koppenberg, which look, those climbs are very hard too, but the Berendries is steep and the Canaryburg kind of goes on forever. And, you know, especially that Canaryburg, I do remember that being a pretty integral moment in the race because now correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that where um, Anamik made one of her first surges in the race i feel like um if memory serves me correctly yeah correct um yeah the canary is a beast of a climb and it it goes on forever and it kind of levels out and then pitches up again and um it's really what allows the race to kind of separate it's hard to get back on there's a, a fast downhill afterwards and then it's kind of climb after climb after climb so if you can't make it over that point in the race it's it's hard to correct um but yeah, she made a really good attack at that point, but there was a pretty strong headwind on that climb and and um, it definitely led to some separation, but it wasn't the moment in the race to make your final move. And so, yeah, that was kind of what, what was going on at that point. Great. Yeah, it's been an interesting year to follow uh, your team because, um, I mean, first of all, the, the big story around Team Movistar this year has been all these new riders coming on board. I mean, this... This you know, it's not a new team, but it feels like a new look team with you coming on board, Anamit coming on board. Sort of the um, the DNA of the team staying similar for last year, but some really important key pieces being added. And I'm curious from your perspective what the process has looked like 
in the get to know you phase and the, uh, you know, get on the same page as everyone else phase. What, what has it been like for you over the last few months getting to know this new team and this new group of, uh, of women and men? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and a person, person, an important person I want to add is Emma, um, has been added to the team and she has had amazing results so far this season, finishing second many, many times, um, so close to the win. Um, but she was my teammate last year when we were on Paul Cott. So it's nice to have a little bit of carryover and a little bit of familiar, um, people around me. Um, that said, it's been really fun getting to know Movistar. I feel like I've had a little bit of a late start uh, getting my footing this year. Unfortunately, um, at team camp, when I was supposed to meet everybody, um, there was a COVID incident, so I had to be in isolation. Um, luckily, nobody else was exposed, um, but precautions are necessary, and it kind of um, affected my ability to, you know, normally at team camp, it's everybody hanging out for many days and going for long, long rides on the bike. And you really get a chance to know your teammates and get to know the staff. And, and I didn't get that opportunity. So for me, it's kind of been getting to know everybody at all the races. And, um, the more I get to race and the more I spend time with them, the, the happier I am. And, um, I really look forward to the rest of the season of building on what we've been able to implement so far. You know, the last team you were on, Team uh, Equipe Palica, was a Swiss team, but there were, you know, a very international squad. This is more a Spanish team. I mean, are you, like, are you learning, having to learn Spanish? Um, how would you describe sort of the, the language of the team and, um, and how do people communicate on the team? Sure, yeah. Well, I'm fortunate that I uh, actually lived in Mexico for a year when I was in college and speak pretty fluent Spanish, um, lacking a little of the bike vocabulary, but that's pretty easy to pick up and, and the foundations are there. So for me, speaking in Spanish is almost a bonus. Like I, I enjoy the fact that it, it gives me a reason and an opportunity to keep um, that skill set alive and growing. Um, in terms of how we communicate, there's definitely some writers who speak predominantly English and then there's writers who speak predominantly Spanish. So, um, we tend to try to use both languages. Like while we're racing in the car, one of our directors speaks predominantly Spanish and we'll speak in Spanish. And then, um, save us. The team manager is generally also in the car and important information he'll translate to the writers who, who don't really understand that. But even despite the language barriers, I think, um, there is a really, great willingness and eagerness to try to communicate across language barriers. So if one of my teammates only speaks English and another one only speaks Spanish, they still really try to communicate together and, and share and engage with one another. So it feels really inclusive, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I would think that that would be even more difficult to do this year with, you know, it being a second COVID year and like not everyone being able to come together all at the same time. And I've just been thinking about this year in general through the, through trying to place it through the lens of bike racers who are often, you know, pretty fairly like specific people. And you have these periods of the year where you're training and racing and getting ready for things and planning. And in a normal year, you know, you can plan things several weeks or several months out and there's a certain precision that goes into or a certain a certain amount of effort that works towards precision. And then you have a year like last year and then this year where plans get thrown out the window and Paris-Roubaix gets called off for the, you know, 10 days beforehand and some of these big major objectives 
get thrown out. And I'm curious for you as an individual, how has it been adjusting your mindset to the new realities of racing over the last, uh, you know, 10 months or so of like this, the, you know, having to abandon plans, start up new plans, refresh plans, and just sort of like, you know, be a bit more flexible than the, the, the cycling life has tended to be in years past. I'm curious what the, what that process has looked like for you. Yeah. Um, I think a big component is, is thinking about it as like, you can only control what you can control. Right. And, and all of this is out of our control and, um, really the health of everyone is, is the most important factor. And so if things aren't safe, um, I'm all for schedules and, and races being moved and schedules being changed and, and all that stuff. But I think for me personally, it hasn't been that hard mentally. Um, and I think a lot of that is because all the changes affect everybody, you know, like if you're injured or you're sick and, and things change, I feel it can be a little bit hard because the rest of the world is is going on doing what you were planning to do and you aren't being able to partake from whatever negative surprise experience, you know, that you've had. And with this, you know, it affects the whole peloton. Everybody's plans change. And so I, in my opinion, there just isn't much worrying to do over it. There's nothing we can do. And so it's, uh, you know, I was supposed to race Roubaix and a couple days and instead I'll be racing it hopefully in October. And, and so, you know, it's, I get to go back to Girona and I get to relax for a week instead and, and, and do some focused training and get ready for the next block of racing. So that's kind of how I look at it. And yeah, hopefully, you know, all these races that people have worked so hard to organize and, and prepare for will, will end up happening. Um, but if they don't happen this week, um, to me, that's okay. And of course the biggest curveball in this conversation of schedules being thrown out the window, et cetera, has been the Olympics. You were on, you are on the Olympic long team for road mm-hmm. cycling for women. Um, you know, here it is 2021. We are assuming the Olympics are going on. Um, I'm curious, first of all, for you, I mean, what type of mindset are you taking into the Olympic sex- selection and the potential of being named an American Olympian? And are you, um, targeting any specific races or any specific performances that might uh, get you named to that team? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would absolutely love to be named to the Olympic team. It would be such an honor to represent the United States in Tokyo. But the selection process is really difficult, and a lot of it feels out of your control to a certain extent. You know, like I'm hired by Movistar to do a certain job for the team and, you know, to race my best, but also um, really support Anamique in her races. And um, my goal is to fulfill that job as best I can. And I know that uh, through doing that, I will have my own results and also um, show my strength as a rider. Um, But um, I am not willing to not be a good teammate or, not put my best foot forward um, in terms of making sure the team gets a good result in order to get my own result for the Olympics. I mean, I would think that at some level that would be a difficult balancing act from especially a mental and emotional standpoint to navigate because being named to the Olympic team would be 
a career accolade and something that, uh, you know, decades from now you could look back on. But also, yeah, like you said, you have a job to do and you're, you are hi- hired to do a, a specific work that means sacrificing your own ambitions. Um, I mean, is this something that keeps you up at night? How have you worked through these sometimes competing um, objectives? Yeah, I try to not think about that too much, actually. You know, like, um, it's kind of the reality of how it is. Uh, you'd hope the selection criteria takes that into account to a certain degree. Really, you want a team that's cohesive. I feel like on Polka, we proved that as a whole, like, we were greater than our sum of our parts. Like, we were better as a team than we were as individual riders. And that's really what you want on a team. You want a team that is cohesive, that uh, works well together, that trusts one another. Um, and really, I feel like that's an, a really integral part to be successful. And um, so, you know, I really hope I can make that Olympic team. I feel like I can contribute in a meaningful way. Um, but I hope whoever they do end up selecting that that's, um, that the team that is selected is the best team to represent the United States. And really, I think that's what matters the most. Well, Leah Thomas, you have an amazingly refreshing outlook on, uh, this wild and wacky 2021. And, um, I commend you for having worked through some difficult emotional, mental, um, overlapping interests. I don't know if I would be mature enough as a person to do that. I think I would be saying these things and then like, I don't know, like having a diary where I have frowny faces <laughs> and uh, like lightning bolts coming out of dark clouds and being like, oh, why couldn't I have won Flanders? Ah! I think part of it too, you know, I am older. I had a career beforehand. Um, I have, I feel maybe a little bit more perspective than a, a younger rider might have. But really, I've tried to make my career about trying to better myself and being the best athlete I can be. And, um, you know, wherever that takes me, if, if that's what I'm accomplishing, that's all I can ask of myself. And so that continues to be kind of where I set my focus and, and where, how I measure my performance. And so hopefully, I don't know, that perspective has worked well for me so far. And I think it's an important one to try to maintain. So that's my goal. Well, Thomas, everyone, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're going to continue to follow your the course of your 2021 season, Olympic selection, and uh, the, the next races. So, Leah, we will let you get back to your afternoon there in Spain and uh, cheer you on at the next races. Thanks so much for having me. This is great.